Well, good morning again, everyone. Welcome here. We're in uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. We've been here a a number of weeks already, and we're going to be here a little bit longer still. Matthew 5 verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And this is our third week looking at this text, and there's, there's really still so much more for us to glean from this. Um, the first couple times we looked at our, the, the necessity of peace that we had, that we needed peace with God because we were alienated from Him because of our sins. And we looked at how that peace was made for us through Jesus Christ, who brought us to peace with God by dying on the cross for our sins, ro- rising again, and, uh, and now preaching the message of peace through the gospel that we might have peace and a relationship with God. And this morning, we're going to look at peacemaking more as far as peace on the horizontal level between man and man, between brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. But As we begin this morning, I want to tell you something here to kind of set this up, and that is I want to tell you what I think is the most dangerous thing for our congregation, the most dangerous thing that our congregation is facing, and it's not the coronavirus, you probably already guessed that, it's not government regulations shutting us down. If we did face persecution, I I think that would be difficult, but there's something that I think that's even more destructive for us to be aware of. Scripture presents two, maybe three major threats to the church. The first one would be persecution, but the church always rises in the face of persecution and it purifies itself and, and the faithful men and, and women of God rise up and stand for the truth. And so there's persecution. Another threat to the church throughout, even in the New Testament times, is false teaching and false teachers. Throughout history, Satan has sought to infiltrate the church with false teaching and and false teachers. And many of the New Testament epistles are written to warn and correct false doctrine that crept into the church. False doctrine on the gospel and the way of salvation. And, And so Paul warns, In Acts chapter 20, he warns the Ephesian elders to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. And then he says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This kind of false teaching that can come into the church, it doesn't even need to be some kind of rank heresy. All it needs to do is just take our focus off the Great Commission and what our purpose is, and we become useless. And so false doctrine, another threat to the church, is serious, and it's something we need to watch out for, but there's something even more dangerous for us. You know, when, when doctrinal drift happens and people move away from the truth of the gospel or move away from the truth of God's word, that usually happens slowly over time. But this thing that I'm talking about today could happen at any time if we're not careful. And so what is this danger that I'm talking about? 
What is it that could destroy our church or ruin our testimony? What is it that could keep us from fulfilling our mission and make us fruitless in our outreach? What is this thing? The answer is some kind of division in the church. Division or a lack of unity in the church. Division from conflict that is handled unbiblically or ungodly. That's something that could, that's dangerous to our church. Now, I just want to say at the outset that I don't think that there's any division happening at this moment, but it's something that we definitely need to watch out for. And as we think about this kind of division and, and conflict, there's actually nothing wrong with conflict per se, depending on your definition of conflict. The way that I'm going to define conflict, if you're taking notes, you want to, might want to write this down. Conflict is a difference in opinion or purposes that frustrates someone's goals or desires. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about conflict. A difference in purpose or opinion that frustrates someone's goals or desires. And just to kind of give you an example of just conflict in general, if you want to go golfing this afternoon, but your wife wants you to take care of the kids, that's a conflict. Now, it's not a bad conflict. There's nothing wrong with that per se. Nothing want, wrong with wanting to go golfing on a nice afternoon. Nothing wrong with wanting your husband to hang around with you and the kids in the afternoon either. It's a difference of opinion, and, and that's fine. It's a difference of opinion in this case on how you should spend the afternoon. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with either opinion. The, the, the problem comes in how you respond to that thing. Because if you yell at your wife and say, you never let me have an afternoon of golfing with the buddies, or she yells at you and says, uh, you never want to spend time with me and the kids, now we've got an unbiblical, ungodly conflict that's, that's going to cause strife in the home. Now we have a problem. That's, that's what I would maybe call sinful conflict. But conflict in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. But the same kinds of things happen in the church. We can have disagreements on how we should do various ministries, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having a strong opinion about, about what we do and how we minister to those that we minister to. In fact, that could be, we could say that if you have some strong opinions that way, it just means that you care about the church and you care about the outreach of the church, and that's a wonderful thing. The, the problem, though, is when we respond to that conflict unbiblically. And we've heard the stories of churches dividing over the color of the carpet or just some ridiculous little things. And, and what's, what's happened is they didn't respond well to the conflict and it escalated until it created a divide and it ruins the testimony of the church. How we relate to one another is vitally important. It's important to God and it's important to us as a, as a local church. It's important to us as individuals because little insignificant differences of opinion can escalate into massive life-destroying divisions in the body. And what happens is, is something just simply like this. One person doesn't prefer the way another person does something. Let's just, just to kind of try to give some examples. It, it, that thing, the way that other person is acting or, or reacting or what they're doing begins to, to bother the first person and they try to ignore it, but they just can't seem to ignore it. 
And maybe they begin to think about why the other person does that something that way. And then all of a sudden there's a temptation now that comes in often to judge that person's motives and the thoughts of their heart. You know, we, we can tend to think, if they're doing this thing that I don't like, it maybe it's because of some sinful attitude that they have. They're proud or they're selfish or, you know, fill in the sin that you think that other person has. And you can kind of see how something like this begins to go. And then as you harbor sinful thoughts about the other person's motives and intentions, your view of that person decreases. And perhaps as that continues to, to build up in your heart, a little bit of bitterness begins to, to arise there. Perhaps all of a sudden you begin to think that you're justified to lash out at that person in anger. Maybe you'll reach the point where you just had enough and you're going to put a stop to them doing that thing that's annoying you by an angry confrontation. And maybe that, that happens maybe most in our marriages, but it can happen in the church as well. Or maybe you're the kind of person that goes the other way and you begin to distance yourself from that person. Instead of lashing out, there's this, this distance that happens and you don't talk to that person and you try to keep away from them and you cut them off. And sometimes cutting others off goes along with talking about them to other people besides that person that you're offended at. When that happens, you're now sinning against that person and if if they now respond to your sin with further sin, you can see how this whole thing would escalate. And this happens in churches. You see, again, it's not necessarily the differences of opinion that cause the problem. It's how we handle those differences, those preferences. And, and what happens is that sin escalates conflict. Sin increases conflict. And there's one particular sin, and really, I think we might even be able to say all of these kind of conflict sins can, can be narrowed down into what we call idolatry. Idolatry. That's, idolatry is when you want something so bad that it, it becomes your, what, what we might call your functional God. When you, when you want something so strongly, that you begin to become willing to sin to get it, that's when it, that desire has become what we call an idolatrous de desire. Now, in, in marriage counseling, I've seen this, and it, it can be anything. Anything can be an idol in our lives. And in marriage counseling, I've seen it where a wife wants her husband to be a godly leader in the home. Now, anything wrong with wanting your husband to be a godly leader in the home? No? Nobody, nobody wants to even give me a nod here this morning. No, nothing. That's a perfectly good desire. In fact, Bible says my husband should be a godly leader in the home. But what, I, what happens is when I've seen it where a wife wants that so bad that she begins to get angry at her husband when he's not doing the godly things that she thinks that he ought to do. And it creates havoc in the home. Chaos in the home. And the, and the way that this kind of sinful idolatry works is something like this. We, we start with a desire. And it could be even a godly one. Like, like we want a desire for your husband to be a godly leader in the home. And there's no problem with that. That's a wonderful desire for you to have. But then that desire starts to grow. And, and sometimes what we do, we call this an inordinate 
desire. The, the desire begins to grow, and now I must have that thing. Or sometimes these things are negative things. We don't want something bad to happen to us, and so we don't want that negative thing to happen to us, and so we, we begin to, to want it so bad that we're, we're willing to sin to keep out of that negative thing, that thing that we don't feel like we want. And so we, we, we must have that desire, or on the other hand, we must not have that negative thing happen to us. And again, when I'm willing to sin to have something, my desire has become a sinful desire. Now what happens then when I can't get my, what I want? Well, sometimes people respond, they, they're not getting what they want, and so they become angry. Or I begin to scheme how I can get that thing, whatever that, that sinful thing is. I, I begin to, to scheme how I can get it, and it begins to consume my mind. And I plot and I scheme and I think how I can get that thing or how I can avoid from getting that negative thing. And then I, I might start to fight for that thing. And I can manipulate or I can threaten or I can lash out in anger to try to get what I want. And what's happened is my desire could be a, could have been a godly desire. That desire now becomes a demand and I, I must have this thing. And we actually, we see this super clear in James chapter four. And so I, I want you to turn with me to James chapter four. This is just kind of like a long teaching introduction. And I know some of my examples aren't really necessarily about things in the church, but these same kind of things can happen in the church and create division in the body. So James chapter 4 really gives us this clear picture of these idolatrous, inordinate desires. In verse 1, James asks this piercing question. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now he's writing to the, the group of people. We could call it the, the church there. He, he's writing to these people and he asks them, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So James goes, hey, what, what is it? Why, are there, why is there division in your midst? Why are there quarrels? Why are there fights? And then he answers that the source of these quarrels and divisions and fights is actually something from within. Is it not your passions are at war within you? Quarrels and fights, sinful conflict comes from the passions of the heart. In other words, they come from desires. They come from desires that have taken control of the lives of people. And then in verse 2, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And so when a desire becomes a demand, we say, I must have this thing. And then from there, what happens is we go from I must have it to I deserve to have this thing. I, I ought to have this thing. I deserve to have this thing. And when, when that demand is not met by those around us, here's what happens. And this is, this is crucial. We begin to punish others for not meeting our demands, right? So I'm not getting that thing that I think I should have and that I must have. Therefore, I'm going to punish you because you should have been giving me this thing, but you're not. 
And then James goes on in verse 3 and he says, you do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so what he's saying is we can even be so bold to ask God to fulfill our idols. And it's no wonder then that he doesn't answer our prayers when we're praying like that. And this kind of idolatry, this kind of yeah, and again, it could be even from a good thing that we want, but this kind of idolatry grows and it's a, a worldly thing. Look at verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The idea of being an adulterous people, it's your, your, your spiritual adulterers. Instead of worshiping and desiring the Lord and honoring Him, you now want all these things and you're fighting for these things. And this is a, a worldly kind of fighting that is actually a, an enmity with God. And so, brothers and sisters, sin is what makes quarrels and sinful con- conflict. Sin in our hearts, the desires of our heart and sin will strain our relationships. Sin is what can ruin our lives. Things like anger and wrath and malice and bitterness and envy and strife. These are the kinds of sins that we need to be so careful of. These are the kinds of sins that show that there's something in our heart where we are, we are committing this spiritual adultery or idolatry. Where we, when we have anger, wrath, malice, bitterness, envy, strife in our hearts, these are the kinds of sins that can lead to division in the church, in the body of Christ. And a division, and, and I'm talking about division here over personal conflict. This kind of division over personal conflict is one of the ways that Satan would love to thwart what God's doing in our church. Now, I'm just, I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do is kind of scare you right now a little bit about the danger of division in the church, especially of, of interpersonal sin. You see, conflict itself is inevitable, right? We're, we're gonna have differences of opinion on, on certain things. And if we deal with that conflict biblically, then conflict is actually an amazing opportunity to glorify God. Now, I'm going to show you that in in subsequent message here, but conflict can be an amazing opportunity to glorify and honor God. But if we deal with conflict in an ungodly, unbiblical manner, it will be and it can be brutally destructive. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, I want to just show you one verse here in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19. verse we could start we could look at verse 18 he's talking about the lord's supper here and uh, he says maybe even verse 17 but in the following instructions i do not commend you because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse for in the first place when you come together as a church i hear that there are divisions among you And I believe it in part. And then look what he says in verse 19. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And so Paul recognizes that there 
is going to be factions in the church. And part of the, the purpose of God behind that is to show those who are, as Paul says, are genuine uh, among you. The, the conflict has a way of showing who's godly and, and who's not godly, right? And so, but conflict itself is inevitable. Now, I just want to say again, I'm not talking here necessarily about conflict over doctrinal things. I think, as I say this, really what I'm talking about today is conflict in, in personal relationships, interpersonal relationships. There is a time, and, and we know this very well at Grace Bible Fellowship, there is a time where doctrinal convictions will lead somebody to, to move to a different church. And that, that is, I think that's totally okay and a, a good thing to do. Um, you know, you don't ever want to leave a church lightly, but what I would say is as a believer in Christ, you want to be at the best church that you can possibly be that's going to teach the scripture. It's going to be a place where you can grow and where other people are learning and receiving and responding to God's word so that we're all growing together. And so as a believer in the Lord, you really want to be at the best possible church that you can be at where the, the leadership and the, the overall direction of the church is one that wants to submit to scripture and follow the Lord. And I'm not really talking about that in, in this message today. There, there is a time where it's time to choose a different church, and that's a, a difficult thing. And, and, and yet, when we do that, we can do that in such a way that our relationships in Christ are still good with those other brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so there's a way to do that in a biblical, godly way that, that shows who is approved or not and, and, and that kind of follows along with everything I'm saying. And so, in other words, I'm not really talking about that necessarily leaving a church. I'm just, I'm talking about interpersonal relationships. And you can leave a church with doctrinal convictions and keep those interpersonal relationships good and godly. So again, if we don't deal with conflict in a godly way, it can be destructive to the church. And so I want to ask you then, as closing this introduction, do you know how to protect yourself and your brothers and sisters in Christ from this danger of division? Do you know how vitally important unity is to God and to our local church? Do you know how vitally important unity is to every local church? And do you know what hinders peace and unity? And do you know how to serve as a peacemaker in the lives of your brethren? Those are the things that we're going to answer in this next few, in this next week or so. I really was hoping to just get this verse done, uh, or at least this section done on peacemaking today. But when I, when I worked on this this week, it just, this, this message kind of took up all the time. So we're just, we're going to kind of, even go even slower through Matthew 5, 9, but that's okay. You know, ever since I've come here, I've wanted to teach on what, what we call peacemaking principles. And this verse is kind of the key verse on peacemaking as far as how to, how to, um, how to make peace. <laughs> and so, um, this is really, really important stuff, and I, I hope it's helpful for you. And so, in your outline this morning, I've got three critical actions so that you can be an instrument of peace wherever you are. But we're just going to look at the first critical action. So really today I've got one critical action. 
And next week, we'll look at the other two critical actions, Lord willing. But three critical actions, one critical action, so that you can be an instrument of peace wherever you are. And what I've done is I've framed these these outline headings as commands. And so these are three things that you need to do. And you should be able to leave the message today and again next week, and you should know exactly what to do to serve as a peacemaker when conflict happens, whether it's in your home, whether it's in the church, wherever wherever there's a difference of opinion or purposes that's frustrating another person's goals or desires, you should be able to know after this message, Lord willing, exactly what you can do to serve as a peacemaker in that situation. And, and the first critical action is something that you and I need to believe. Because before we can start to do something, there's some things that we need to believe that are going to drive us as we are seek to be peacemakers with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's something that you and I need to believe. This is a, a conviction that you must have if you're going to be an instrument of peace. And that conviction is, number one, is believe the importance of peacemaking. We're to, we need to believe the importance of peacemaking. Peacemaking is vitally important and we need to believe how important it is to God and how critical it is in His Word. So this is something that you need to believe. This is a conviction that we must have in order to be a peacemaker. And I've said all along in this series that this kind of peacemaking begins with peace with God. Right? We were once hostile to God, alienated from Him, but now through Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access to the Father by the Holy Spirit. And now that we have peace with God, we should also be at peace with others. Now, peace in this way means two things. There's two sides to this peace. The first one, the first side of this is that hostility should be removed. There should be no enmity, no hatred, no bitterness, no envy, no jealousy in our lives. Nothing like that exists in a peace. If we have this peace that this verse is talking about with others, there's no hostility, envy, bitterness, jealousy. All of those things are non-existent in peace. Now on the positive side means... If we have this peace, it means that there should be harmony, there should be love, there should be goodwill towards others, we should care for one another. And so to be at peace has both sides. It means that nothing negative is hindering the relationship, and that there exists some positive things like love and courtesy for the other person. The Lord cares very much that we would be at peace with one another. And we'll talk about how this works with unbelievers later. But right now, we're just looking at our relationships in the body. We are the body of Christ. And a body needs to function together. When a physical body doesn't function together, it's a sign of some kind of sickness or some kind of severe condition. Like I think cancer is some kind of thing where the body attacks cells that that it shouldn't be attacking. I'm not a doctor, so that's probably a bad illustration. But, But when the body is attacking a healthy part of the body, that's when when things are in chaos. That's when your body is sick. A healthy body works together. 
And so our relationships with other Christians should be characterized by peace and harmony. And to show you that, I want to start by turning to John chapter 13. So let's go to to John chapter 13. And we're going to start in verse 34. John 13, 34. Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you, excuse me, if you have love for one another. So Jesus commands his disciples to love one another, and he calls this the, the new commandment. Love one another. Note that just as I have loved you. Now, how did Jesus love his disciples? How did Jesus love us? Well, we could just turn ahead to John chapter 15. And if you look at verse 12 there, it says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Again, he's repeating himself here. Very important. The Lord's repeating this multiple times through this last final message that he gives. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And now he defines his love. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so Jesus laid down his life for us. And if we love each other just as he loved us, it means that we will lay down our lives for one another. It means that we will lay aside our rights. It means that we will lay aside our privileges. It means we will lay aside our preferences. We will lay aside our desires. And anything else that we can, we will lay it aside to bless each other. Love is an action that seeks to bless others. Love is an action that seeks to benefit others. And so to obey Jesus here means that we lay down our lives for the benefit of one another. And this is Jesus' final commandment before His crucifixion. This is important to the Lord that He would repeat this over and over as He's kind of leaving His disciples with His last words, love one another. And notice what He said back in 13.35. He said, By this all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. And so part of the effectiveness of our outreach as a local church is based on our love for one another. It's by this love for one another that people will say, these are disciples of Jesus Christ. You know, an unbeliever or another person should, should be able to come here and see our love for one another and think, this is unusual. This is, this is different. What is happening in this place? Oh, I know what it must be. It must be that these people know Jesus Christ and they're His disciples. And so they they begin to see by our love and realize that we are true disciples of Jesus Christ. And again, this is Jesus' final new command that we was to love one another as I have loved you. And then after this, Jesus prays for His disciples. And he prays for us in John chapter 17, and you can turn there with me. A, a large part of, 
of this prayer was for our unity and for our love. And so again, turn to John chapter 17. And this is an amazing prayer. I'll start, I'll just start reading at verse four or at verse one here right now. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son might, may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so in the first five verses there, Jesus tells the Father that He has accomplished the work that His Father had given Him to do. And He asks the Father to glorify Him with the glory that He had with the Father before the world existed. And then in verses 6-9, to Jesus introduces in this prayer, He introduces the disciples. And He calls them the ones that the Father had given. The Father gave these people to Jesus and and they have come to saving faith. And in verse 9, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so Jesus now, as He's about to leave the earth, He prays for His people, for His disciples, for those whom the Father has given them. And so he's just introducing them in verses six to nine. And then in verse 11, he, he begins to make a request for them. So he's introduced them to the Father. He kind of brings them before the Father. And now he gives a request in verse 11. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. And the idea here is that Jesus is going to heaven. And so he asks his father to keep his disciples, those disciples that he had kept while he was with them. He is now leaving them and he says, he prays to the father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And and, and so that, that keeping of these disciples involves involves them being one. He wants them, and really He wants us to be one, even as He is one with the Father. Notice that, how He says that. He wants them to be so unified, even as we are one. Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are are, are one God in three persons. And so there's this this unity and yet diversity in the Trinity. And, and, and Jesus is asking, let the, that be the same with the disciples. He wants them to be one even as He is one with the Father. And then look at verse 12. He says, While I was with them, I kept them in Your name which You have given Me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to You And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
And so Jesus here is praying for the security of his disciples' salvation. He, he, while he kept them, none of them was lost except for Judas who, who was, was known before the foundation of the world that that would happen. And so now he's, he's really entrusting his disciples to the Father. And he's praying for the security of their salvation and, and that involves them being one in him. And then in verse 20, Jesus moves beyond his immediate disciples who are presently with him, and, and he begins to, to pray now for those who would believe through them. In other words, Jesus here is praying for us because we are those who believed through them. So look at verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, these, these present disciples that are with me, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And so Jesus' prayer is that we would be one. And at least three times Jesus repeats this prayer that we might be one. In verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me. Again, later in that verse, that they also may be in us. In verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. And again in verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. Now look at the middle of verse 21 there. There's that so that statement kind of near the middle end of verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is why Jesus is praying that they would be one. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And again at the end of verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And so Jesus here, he recognizes that his mission depends on our unity. And so he prays for it. And this is how important our unity and peace is. Now, think about this prayer. When is this prayer answered? Or, or when was this prayer of Jesus answered? Jesus' prayers are always perfectly aligned with God's will, and so they're always answered. And so you could start to think about this. When was this answered? And the answer to the answer is that these prayers were answered when the Spirit came and indwelt the disciples. These prayers were answered when the disciples were united to Christ by the Holy Spirit in their salvation. When the disciples became the body of Christ. And, I, and actually, just to see this, and I think I've showed you this verse before, but go to 1 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> First Corinthians 12 and verse 12, Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, there it is right there, the body is one. That's talking about the body of Christ and has many members. There's many individual people in the body of Christ. And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And then in verse 13, Paul explains this. He says, For in one spirit... 
We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And the idea here is that when you got saved, you became a member of this one body. There are many members, but there's only one body. And we are joined together in this body. We are joined together by the Holy Spirit in our salvation. And to kind of explore this a little bit more, turn ahead with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, when in November we looked together at verses 1 to 10, and really verse 1 to to 9 talks about what we were saved from. We were saved from our spiritual death. We were saved from our sin. But verses 10 to 22 focus more on what we were saved to or what we were saved into. And so look at verse 14 here. There's a lot happening in, in these verses. This is one of Paul's long sentences in Ephesians. But Ephesians 2.14, he says, For he himself is our peace. Now, that he himself there, that's speaking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now there's a lot happening in these few verses, but Jesus himself is our peace, and he made both one. Now when Paul says both there, he's referring to saved Jews and Gentiles. And so saved Jews and Gentiles are both made one because Jesus is our peace. In verse 16, it says that He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And so Jesus, who is our peace, has reconciled us, Jews and Gentiles, both of us, to God. In other words, Jesus is our peace because by His death on the cross, He removed the hostility between God and us. But He is also our peace on the horizontal level. That was the vertical level. There's peace with God. But He's also peace on the horizontal level. That is because He made us, He he made us one. That is, He made everyone who is saved into this one body. And He did this by joining us together in Himself. And so look at again at the end of verse 15. It says that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And the one new man that Christ made in verse 15 is called the one body in verse 16. And you know that that one body is the church. And so if you are in Christ, you are joined together with everybody else who is in Christ. And so... In this sense, Jesus' prayer was answered and, and peace exists between us. In fact, Jews and Gentiles were the two most hostile groups in the ancient Near East. And, and by, by bringing them together in himself, Jesus has really brought all people together in himself. There's no other category of people besides Jews and Gentiles. That, that encompasses 
all people. You're either a Jew or you're not a Jew. And so all people have been brought together in Christ in their salvation. And so there's this peace that exists between us. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, and you you don't have to turn there, but 12.24, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And this concept of the body should change the way that we think. You know, if your arm hurts, your whole body cares for that arm, doesn't it? Your whole body is, is careful to make sure that you don't, you don't bump that arm or you don't bruise that arm or you don't bend it in a way that it doesn't want to bend. And so the whole body cares for any other hurting part of the body. And it's the same in the body of Christ. We should be as concerned about one another as we are concerned about ourselves. And so again, the body of Christ is the answer to Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Through salvation, Jesus brought peace to His body. He brought peace to His disciples. Now, if you're still in Ephesians 2, I just want you to turn ahead now to Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll look at verses 1, really 1 to 6 here, I guess. Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Therefore, or I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now Ephesians 4, if you're still with me, is the turning point in this book to the Ephesians. In chapters 1-3, to Paul explains salvation. In in chapters 1-3, to he explains the calling to which you have been called. God has called us to Himself through the Gospel. And so this calling to which you have been called is is really the salvation that we have in Christ. And that calling, that salvation that we have in Christ means that we have been blessed with all kinds of spiritual blessings. In, in fact, Ephesians 1.3 says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now in chapter 4 of Ephesians, after explaining our calling, Paul turns and he switches from explaining all these blessings that we have, and now he exhorts the Ephesians to walk worthy of all of these blessings that they have. He says, you've been blessed in Christ, chapters 1-3, to now... I want you to, to live out that salvation. I want you to live according to these blessings that you have in Christ. In other words, live out your salvation. And what is the first thing on Paul's list? What is the first thing that Paul is concerned about as he exhorts the Ephesians to live worthy of their salvation? It's that he wants them to walk in unity. Number one is that Because we are one in Christ, therefore to walk worthy of our salvation means that we walk in unity. And all of the character traits there in Ephesians 4 and verse 2 are traits that promote unity. And so how should we walk? How should we live? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, these are all things that promote unity. Note especially there, verse 3, we are to be eager to maintain the unity, the unity of the Spirit. See, there's a, a unity of the Spirit that already exists And our job is to maintain that unity, to keep that unity, to preserve that unity. And keeping this unity requires eagerness, or the New American Standard Bible translates it diligence. We need to eagerly and diligently guard the unity we have. We need to eagerly and diligently walk in these virtues that are listed in chapter 2, humility and gentleness and patience and a, a bearing with one another in love. Hebrews 12 and verse 14, a parallel passage says, strive for peace with everyone. Strive, that's another kind of vigorous word. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And and really, peace and holiness go together because when we walk in holiness, we promote peace in the body of Christ. Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so there's this recognition that it's not always possible, but as, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then later in chapter 14 of Romans 14.19, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And so this peace of the Spirit is something that already exists, and yet it is something that we need to work hard to maintain. It's something that we are to pursue and we're to strive to keep it by living holy and sanctified lives. Now Paul reinforces this call to unity in in verses 1-3 to with some facts about salvation in verses 4-6. to So if you're still in Ephesians here, this is Ephesians... 4, 4 to 6. And in Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, there's seven ones mentioned. And each one of these ones, each one of these ones are, are unifying aspects of salvation. And so look at it there. It says there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, what what are these things? Well, there's one body. We've been talking about that. There's one body of Christ and every true believer is part of that one body. And there is one Spirit. That is, there is one Holy Spirit who baptized you into that one body. And there's one hope. And the idea of that one hope is that the, the one hope that belongs to your call, every believer in Christ shares the same future hope. We don't have different hopes. We're all going to go to the same heaven, to the same place, and so we share this one hope of our future resurrection and living with God and enjoying Him and glorifying Him. We have this one hope that belongs to our call into salvation. And we have one Lord 
And that is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. And we share the, the same Lord if we're Christians. If, if you and I are Christians, we have the same Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have different Lords. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ. And He is the one Lord that we share if we are believers in Christ. Then He says there's one faith. And the best view on this, at least as far as I've studied, the best view is that this one faith is that there's one set of beliefs that we have if we're saved. We, we share the same belief. We, we believe the same thing, not in every single sphere, but there's a, a core faith that we believe. There's not multiple faiths or multiple ways to God. There is one body of truth, one gospel that we believe for salvation. Now, Paul doesn't lay that out here, but, but there is only one gospel that we believe unto salvation. If you don't believe that one faith, if you don't believe that one gospel message, then you aren't a Christian because a Christian is one who believes by faith and has received Jesus Christ. Now the, the next one there in verse 5 is one baptism. This means that there is one baptism of the Spirit that unites us to Christ and to His body. Now, I just, you know, because we're, we're here, I probably wouldn't say this, but I'm, we're in Lacrete here, and so there's some different teaching on this verse that some of you have made me aware of. This, this is not one water baptism. This is, this isn't talking about water baptism at all. There's not, there's not one water baptism per person. We're not all water baptized at the same time and in the same place and in the same water. There is, this is talking about the baptism into the Spirit. The same baptism that we talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 or Romans chapter, chapter 6. Not water baptism, but, but one Spirit baptism. Now there is only one water baptism in, in this sense. When someone is water baptized or water immersed as a believer to picture this spiritual baptism when the Holy Spirit baptizes somebody with the one baptism then there's no need to get baptized again and so in that sense there is only one water baptism and um, in an ideal world everyone who got quote baptized would get baptized like that as a true believer by immersion and there wouldn't be any problems or concerns about baptism now when pastors don't help people get baptized biblically, then it creates a situation where we need to decide what to do for those people. And most believers, or, or many believers throughout history, have argued that the first immersion doesn't count as a baptism if it wasn't done as a picture of that person's true spiritual condition in the one spirit baptism. Now, like I've been saying all along, one day I'm going to just spend a lot of time teaching on baptism and we'll, we'll kind of work through that together as a body. But this one baptism that Paul is talking about is spiritual baptism. And there's only one of those because there's only one salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and one body of Christ. Now, the last one in Ephesians chapter 4 is that there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is one God and Father of all. All here doesn't mean all people, but Father of all, the people that have been described in verses 4 and 5. There is one God and Father of all the people who are truly saved. He is over all of us. That is, He is our Lord in the sense that this one God and Father is our Master. 
He is through all of us. And the idea there is that He is working through each believer. And He is in all of us. By the Spirit, the Father and the Son live in each of us. Now, God does not live in all people. He only lives in saved people like that. And so these alls in, in verse 6 are speaking about true believers. This one God and Father of all, He is He's in all and through all, and, uh, and that's talking about believers. Now, these seven ones that Paul lists show our unity, and in every case, what we see... We, in every case here, we see that what God has done to bring us together. He has, he has saved us with this one calling. He has joined us into one body by one spirit through the one Lord Jesus Christ in the one faith and one baptism. And we have one God. And so there's this unity that Paul is showing. And, and what we see here then is what God has done to bring us together. This is what God has done to bring us together. Now, we are called to maintain this unity. And if you're not diligently maintaining the unity of the Spirit, you could be working against what God has done. Now, next week as we come back to this, we're going to look at how to handle conflict biblically. But for today, for, for today I want you to think about really all the letters that the apostles wrote to the churches, just kind of as one final thing to think about as we think about our unity and, and the importance of being a peacemaker. Think about all the letters that the apostles wrote to the churches. And every letter to the churches tells them to live in ways that's going to promote peace. Every letter to the churches tells them to live holy, sanctified lives, to put off sin. And remember, sin is the thing that brings conflict and division. And so if we went to Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. A, a life lived in the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And, and those are the things that make for peace in the body. Now we already looked at Ephesians, but if we went now to Colossians chapter 3, Paul says there, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And all of these things would promote peace in the body. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Or Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. More and more love for one another. Now we could kind of go through the whole New Testament, but you, you get the idea. The apostles taught the churches to live in a way that would maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so the, the peace that we have amongst ourselves is incredibly important to the Lord he commanded us to love one another as we began. He prayed for our unity. 
in John chapter 17. In Ephesians chapter 2, He Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our peace. And He purchased our peace with His life and with His death on the cross. And He united us to each other in Himself, in His body. And He sent His apostles to command us and to teach us how to live at peace with one another. And so today, really, all I've been able to do is just briefly show you the importance of peace. And if we're going to be instruments of peace, we, we really need to believe that, that this is important. That it's not just something that we can take lightly. It's not just something that we can kind of, yeah, I don't know. It's I, I'm not too worried about it. I'm not too concerned about it. This is something that is critically important to the Lord, that He even gave His life that we would have this peace and this unity. And so if we're going to be diligent in our pursuit of peace, we need to have some convictions about this. And so today I just, I'm just asking you, let the Word of God convince you about the importance of peace. That's really all I'm asking in this message is, look, we've, we've looked at the Word, now, now believe what the Lord has said here. It is critically important for us. When we come back next time, we're going to talk about what hinders peace and actually how, how do we make peace? What are some practical ways that we can, can interact peacefully when we have a difference of opinion or purpose with another person? Or, or how can we go about graciously and, and peacefully talking to those with whom we have differences? These are really, really important things for our church, for the future of our church, and, and really for the, the witness and the mission that we have as a local church to bring the gospel. Because it's through our love for one another that all men will know that we are His disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our time together. And perhaps it's a bit tedious for us to just spend a whole Sunday looking at the importance of peace, but You have set a high priority on, on peace and love in your body. And so we pray that we would be a body that exemplifies love, that we would be a body that exemplifies peace. And, and really, much like the Thessalonians, I, I thank you, Father, that, that we have this peace. And we just pray that, that we would ab abound more and more in it, that we would abound more and more in love for one another, that we would be the kind of people that give our lives up for one another, that even the whole world would say, wow, those are followers of Jesus Christ. And we know with that recognition also comes persecution, but we know that we can handle all things through Christ who strengthens us. Father, help us to be the kind of people that You want us to be, that we would be people who maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We thank You for that unity. We thank You that You have joined us together in Jesus Christ. And we pray that that unity would, would be manifest through our lives. We ask it for Your name, for in Jesus' name. Amen.